There's something nasty in the woodshed. Welcome to episode four of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we dismantle the teetering Jenga tower of literary comedy block by block, then sigh as it collapses once again into a heap of wooden rubble. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the mathematical mystery series published by Farago Books, the latest one of which, Bad Day in Minsk, will be released into the world a day or two after this very podcast. Our guest today is the multi-talented Abby Hayden, one of the bookseller magazine's rising stars of 2018, editor, author, TikToker, and all-round publishing good egg. I first encountered Abby on Twitter when she was commissioning editor for Farago Books at a time when I was trying to find a publisher for The Truth About Archie and Pie, the first mathematical mystery. One thing led to another, and she has now edited four of them, poor woman. Welcome, Abby. Oh, thank you very much, Jonathan. (laughs) We'll talk a bit more about uh, you and your work later on. But first of all, uh, we're going to talk about Cold Comfort Farm, which, according to Wikipedia, is a comic novel by English author Stella Gibbons, published in 1932, and it parodies the romanticised, sometimes doom-laden accounts of rural life popular at the time by writers such as Mary Webb, who I have never heard of. Show my ignorance there. My, my copy of the book actually has a... Uh, a quote on the front cover by another author, and I bet you can't guess who it is. It's not Julie Birchill, is it? It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that when I picked up my copy to yeah. reread it before we did the recording, and I was thinking, oh, what a great week to be thinking about <laughs> Julie Birchill. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess even a stopped clock is right twice a day. You know, that so... was the exact comment I was going to make myself. <laughs> and you know so her quote is very probably the funniest book ever written a brilliant novel along classic lines and Mm. I think I think that's something that we can I mean the listeners will come to their own opinions but I think she was right Mm. whatever else she's wrong about I I have to agree with her on that and I hope that people who disagree with her on many things would would be willing to take the plunge into Cold Comfort Farm, despite <laughs> despite her approval of it. So, so why did you pick pick this book in particular, apart from the fact that it's very probably the funniest book I've ever read? <laughs> and also, well, mostly it's because Julie Birchall said it obviously, was. Obviously, obviously, obviously. <laughs> no, the, so when you asked me, I was thinking of the comic novels that I've known and loved all my life, and quite a few that sprang to mind were classics that are probably on your hit list and some have already come out like um, Lucky Jim for example mm-hmm. which I read as a teenager and I, f- I can't remember when I first came across this book but I would say it was probably when I was a, an undergraduate and basically I wanted to pick a novel by a female writer mm-hmm. um, because the canon doesn't have enough women 
in it just in all fields but even in literature where you know there's hasn't been the same sort of things holding them back as there might be from composing for an orchestra or being seen in an art gallery writing has been within the reach of women and yet there aren't enough of us in Mm. the canon so it's partly that I wanted to choose a female novelist and not Douglas Adams who I also adore but you know I'm sure someone else will pick him Mm -hmm. but also this is a truly truly hilarious book and so to have the chance to talk about it with you just seemed too good to miss. I'd I'd forgotten how funny it was actually Uh, rereading it I mean as as we got the same edition so I I must have read it I think it's a 1998 edition I, I, I checked Ah, uh, okay. Um, then so, I would have been a postgraduate. Yeah, so 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 must have read it around about the same time. So it's quite it was quite a long time ago. And I, I'd just forgotten how, how absolutely hilarious it was. Mm. <laughs> and I think one thing that's really one reason why it still works today is that although it was written in the early thirties, and you know almost a century ago, and some books that were written in a similar time, like P.G. Woodhouse's novels, you you can enjoy them, but they are of their time. Mm. But this book, there is so much in it that you recognize today. And as I was reading with my now sort of Twitter defined brain on, I just kept thinking, I know this person. I I recognize this behavior. This person is a is a trope. They're a meme. We we recognize them. Mm. And it, it has this timeless quality that I think means you can enjoy it today without knowing anything about history and just a lot of it carries forward into the 21st century. Mm. Yeah and uh, the other thing was is she for some reason and I, I, I don't quite understand why she did it but because it's not necessary for the for the book to work but she set it in the future from when when she was writing it. So I think the thing that's so amusing about the fact that she chose to set it in the future is that she seemed to be playing with with lots of different genres, not just laughing at this very heavy, earthy, literary style, but also she parodies terribly serious people who watch Japanese art films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she parodies people who go to parties where someone strips off and it's all amazingly artistic and very moving. And, you know, like every kind of dreadful person, you can find them somewhere in this book. But I think the fact that she's lifted it into a future that didn't exist yet kind of allows her to push things that little bit further. Mm. And and to alert you to the fact that nothing that's happening here is is real, that it's all very playful. Um, and, the, and she also has forays into postmodernism, doesn't she, with with her two star and three star passages that she, <laughs> when she suddenly when she wants to do some proper writing and and uh, she's suddenly right. This is a, this is a three star passage, and she actually puts three asterisks in asterisks in the. Um, in the text. I love that so much. And that comes back to this idea of her being young and just full mm. of full of sort of impudence and, and then an unwillingness to take anything seriously because 
in this foreword that she's written to Anthony Puckworthy, who apparently is supposed to be Horace Walpole, another author I've never read. But she talks about the fact, in the foreword, she writes to him and explains that, that she is a mere tyro scribbling away in the meaningless and vulgar bustle of newspaper offices and that she can't aspire to his level, but she's going to try. And when she gets to what she considers the finer passages, she's going to star them. And she said, I have adopted the method perfected by the late Herb Baedeker so that you can find your way through the book <laughs> and identify those quality passages. And I just, I, I think that's perfect because it, it reminds you in this, as you say, this sort of postmodern way that you're reading a creation, that you, it's, it's her book, it's her story and that she's playing with you. So although you're reading Flora Post's story, you're reminded from time to time that Stella Gibbons is telling you this story and that she's having fun. There's, there's so many, so many odd bits. The, 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 the one that made me laugh out loud was the story of the, the, the cows, the graceless, <laughs> graceless, pointless, feckless, nameless. Yes. And there's this, this lovely bit a few, a few pages later, just after they've been introduced, when um, Adam Lambsbreath, he's enmeshed in, in, in his grief about something. Oh, he's 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 worried about Elfine. Elfine, oh, he's, 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 he's about in Elfine, love yeah. with her, but yeah. he's obviously far, far too old. Yeah. In fact, I think everyone on the farm is too old for Elfine. Yeah, because yes. um, it's Irk, <laughs> Irk, the man <laughs> with the love of his water voles who wants her, but yes, does that's not. Right. Spoiler yeah. alert: does not get her. Um, but there's this this this, lo- this lovely bit of where, where he's 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 just being. Just grieving about his his inability to his, he'll he'll never have Elfine, and then he just he did not notice that Grace's leg had come off and that he she was managing as best she could with three, yes. and this just suddenly thrown in for no, really not start <laughs> expecting it. I just burst out laughing at that. This is so wonderful. I I love it. Yeah, that that really made me laugh, and especially because Adam's not really a major character. I mean, no. he's very important at the start, but. He's there as the ultimate sort of man of the soil, and he talks mm. in this very strong dialect. And one of the things that he does first, which it becomes apparent that everyone in the farm does, is that he uses all these words that you've never heard of and that Stella Gibbons has just invented. Yes. So um, he's, just before the bit where Graceless's leg falls off, he says, um, I... I'd have done better to cowdle our feckless in my bosom than little Elfine. I, wild as a marsh tigget in May, Tez. And it's like, is there a marsh tigget? Can you cowdle someone? But you know he can and you know what it is. Mm. And they're always scranlitting. <clears throat> they're always out scranlitting with the plough. Yes. Seth, the womanizer, he goes out a mollocking. And... <laughs> It just seems she's found these really powerful words that conjure mm. up this kind of dark, earthy countryside thing. And even he doesn't clean the dishes, he clatters them. He clatters them. <laughs> clatters them. <laughs> and, and he clatters them with a thorn twig. Yes. Not even with, and when Flora buys him a <clears> brush, <throat> he, she buys him a little brush and he won't use it because it's mm. too pretty and he sticks with the thorn twigs. 
But he hangs it around his neck, doesn't he, or something? To, oh, I think he does, because yeah. it's so pretty. Yeah. Um, and there's the, I, I cannot run here and run there to fetch newspapers for a Capsi Wenet. And okay. I, I googled, I, I, I just, I had to Google Capsi Wenet just in case it was a real phrase. And of course, the only hits that came up were Cold Comfort Farm. Yes, I did the same with snood, because I know the word snood, because especially having grown up in the 80s and 90s, it, there was a trend for women to wear like their sort of scarf that goes around your head but you can pull it up over your head I, I I don't know why it wasn't I don't think it was a good trend but it was we were all talking about snoods and then there's a bit just before Graceless's leg falls off where we meet Seth in the kitchen if I can just read you a little bit mm. in the large kitchen which occupied most of the middle of the house a sullen fire burned the smoke of which wavered up the blackened walls and over the deal table, darkened by age and dirt, which was roughly set for a meal. A snood full of coarse porridge hung over the fire and standing with one arm resting upon the high mantle, looking moodily down into the heaving contents of the snood, was a tall young man whose riding boots were splashed with mud to the thigh and whose coarse linen shirt was open to his waist. The firelight lit up his diaphragm muscles as they heaved slowly in rough rhythm with the porridge. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful, isn't it? And the way, just, why did she say snood? I mean, it's perfect. <laughs> because she yeah. could have just said pot or cauldron yeah. or kettle. or. But the fact that it's a snood, and I googled snood and porridge, and the only thing that came up. <laughs> was cold comfort farm so i think she yeah. just enjoyed enjoyed mm. that word and the book is so full of these little treats mm. of words that work but also the fact that like seth's muscles are are kind of lit by the fire and they're they're heaving like this thick porridge <laughs> another thing about i suppose i feel bad that we're just attacking the book in a random order and not talking about the story in, in a way that makes sense but before we try that just one of the things that's so so enjoyable is that each of the characters at Cold Comfort Farm is a, such a specific type of person <clears throat> and Seth is the oversexed good-looking glamorous one and there's one scene I think it's not far from here where he's lounging and his shirt is open and a button pops and then he lounges a bit more and yet another button pops. And by the end of the scene, about four buttons have burst open. <laughs> and it's like, it's kind of, it's, it's just gratuitous how many yes. buttons <laughs> pop off his shirt. And his own mother has this kind of incestuous yeah. desire for him. And the fact that his buttons keep popping, it's all connected to the, the way that she looks at him so sort of darkly. Yeah. And it, what I also think is funny is that the material is very dark, but she writes about it with this kind of youthful in exuberance, like it's ridiculous how they live. Mm. And I suppose maybe that leads us to talk about Flora and the shape of the story a little bit. Mm. So just for anyone who hasn't read Cold Comfort Farm, basically... The premise of the story is that Flora Post is orphaned at 19. Her parents have died of, I think it's described as the annual 
Hang on, let me just. Oh, yes, it's very topical. Isn't it? <laughs> it is rather topical. She's, it says the education bestowed on Flora Post by her parents had been expensive, athletic, and prolonged. And when they died within a few weeks of one another during the annual epidemic of the influenza or Spanish plague, which occurred in her 20th year, she was discovered to possess every art and grace, save that of earning her own living. And when I reread it, I thought, hmm, people dying in an influenza plague. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what I think is interesting is that, so sorry, just to go back to explaining the story, Flora Post decides that she can't possibly work. That would be just too dreadful and that she's going to sponge off her relatives. And so she, she sends letters to the various relatives she has and they're all dreadful in different ways. I think one of them is a sort of lives in a Scottish castle by himself and one of them is like a jolly hockey sticks person I think has meetings of the spiritualist society in the attic or something and the only the only attractive prospect is this family out in the wilds of Sussex who she's never met their cousins and they agree to take her in because unbeknown to her there's this curse upon them and they always knew that Robert Post's child would come and reclaim her rights so they accept her because they think she she's come to take the farm but she has no idea why and so she goes to the farm she meets them all she finds that their lives are all chaotic and difficult and she decides to sort them all out and that's basically the book we meet them we find out what is so chaotic about each of their lives and we see her untangle them and what's funny is the sort of contrast between her matter-of-factness and every character's desire to make life more complicated and difficult than it needs to be. Yeah, that's a very good way of summarising it. Yes, I, I thought perhaps after talking about all the details and all these different people, perhaps I ought to just explain what the book is about and where it goes, because in a way it doesn't need any spoiler alert, because you mm. know from the beginning that her goal is to sort them out. And it seems unlikely that she can, but she's the kind of person who can't be stopped. Yes, that's right. She's, I mean, she's, I suppose the shades of um, Emma are about her, isn't it? She's the sort of the, 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 the fixer, the, the matchmaker and, and, uh, and mm. that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I think it's a um, good comparison. Although I found Emma quite annoying and... Mm. And I think one thing that's nice about Flora is that although she 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 does manipulate people a little bit, but she no, she manipulates them a lot. But she's actually very honest about what's happening. And so you you hear her calculating because, for example, Amos is a hellfire preacher, and she suggests to him that perhaps he could not just do it in the local village, but all around the country and she she suggests it to him really carefully so that he doesn't notice that that's what she's doing but with everyone she she basically says look if you did this you would be happier Mm. so although she's in it she interferes in their lives for me she doesn't come across as as pestering or nagging she it's more like if you if you take this advice you will be happier and they do and they are she reminded me of Marie Kondo. <laughs> <laughs> because, yes. 
Because there's this famous <laughs> clip. Um, if you watch the series with Marie Kondo on Netflix, mm. she's in someone's house and like there are there's sort of clothes everywhere, and she just looks at it and she goes, I love mess. And she looks really happy. And in fact, there's a quote somewhere that I think I forgot to to post it, uh, to put a post-it note on, but um, it said something like Flora detests mess, but she detests it and wants to fix it. So I, I just see her, you know, helping people find the things that spark joy. Mm. <laughs> and yes. I did find with Flora and various other characters that there is a sort of internet type, but she, she's, if she was alive today, she would either have a business book about, and I don't mean Stella Gibbons, I mean Flora Post, mm. but you know, Flora Post would either have written um, a business book, like Who Moved My Cheese, oh, God, that yes. helps people sort themselves yeah. out, mm. or, or something more in the sort of Mrs. Hinch, sort out your life, declutter, be happy, mm. spark joy. And she would be a hit. Like yeah, people totally. would love her. Mm. And then I had a couple of other internet types. Oh, Elphine. She's, she's this wild spirit and she's always dashing here and there and wearing floaty clothes and yeah. she's like, do you love poetry i love poetry and she's emitting very strong manic pixie dream girl energy oh yes <laughs> <laughs> and seth with his popping shirt buttons is is you know there's there's a type of man on social media who's always you know, showing off his chest muscles and what's the word, like glowering at the camera and basically looking hot and <laughs> like building a following because of that. And yeah. then my bug. Yes, is... my bug. We haven't spoken about him yet, have we? <laughs> <laughs> so he's just this, so he's, he's this other writer. He's a truly dreadful person. And yeah. I did watch the film when it came out in about 95 or six. I read the mm. film before I saw the book actually. And I said that the wrong way around. <laughs> I saw the film before I read the book. I know what verbs are for. <laughs> um, so I, 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 but I, yeah, I, think, I think you should. Um, but I, I, I watched a few clips of the film on YouTube in preparing for this recording mm. and I'd forgotten that Mr. Mybug is played by Stephen Fry. Yes. And he is yeah. perfectly cast mm. because he's too, he's, he's this dreadful man that most people and all women have met at a party. Mm. He, he's like a reply guy on Twitter. He, he has opinions. He wants you to know them. He, um, he tells her all the time, I must warn you. Oh, what does he, I, I wrote a quote that he said, the very first time he meets Flora, he says, hello, Flora Post. Do you believe that women have souls? And there he was standing above her and looking down at her with a bold yet whimsical smile. <laughs> and Flora replies, I'm afraid I'm not very interested. She's, she's just puncturing him. But, you know, I think we've all, I, when I say we, I mean all women. I don't think it happens to to men in the no. same way although I'm prepared to be corrected um, no. <laughs> of, you know you're just minding your own business yeah. and, and a man who 
who has self-identified as being an intellectual will come up to you and say things like, um, do you believe that sex always comes between friendship between a man and a woman? Or, you know, uh, or do you believe women have souls? It's always something ridiculous that you, mm. and if you give them any, like if you give that conversation any oxygen, you're doomed. You won't get away for an hour because the person will tell you all their theories and talk at you and think that you're charming because you just stood there and smiled at them. And mm. he, he gives off that energy. And uh, he's always telling her, I warn you. And one of the things he says is, I warn you, I'm a queer moody brute. Nobody likes me. I'm like a child that's been wrapped over the knuckles till it's afraid to shake hands. But there's something there if you care to dig for it. And it's just like, oh. There's, a, there's an absolutely marvellous bit where, where describing the walks that Flora takes with, with Mr. Mybug. Mm -hmm. they, used, they used sometimes to walk through a pleasant wood of young birch trees, which were just beginning to come into bud. The stems reminded Mr. Mybug of phallic symbols, and the buds made Mr. Mybug think of nipples and virgins. Mr. Mybug pointed out to Flora that he and she were walking on seeds which were germinating in the womb of the earth. He said it made him feel as if he were trampling on the body of a great brown woman. He felt as if it were a partner in some mighty rite of gestation. Flora used sometimes to ask him the name of a tree, but he never knew. <laughs> <laughs> and also, because I, I highlighted the same, the same page when I was thinking of this, and the thing that he does is he, remark, he remarks before how curious it was that most English women, most young English women that was, were inhibited. <laughs> and he thinks that she's cold and inhibited. And I think that in the 60s, it would have been frigid because mm. she doesn't want to talk to him about sex. And his interpretation is that she's cold and he, he has all this rampant sexual sort of enthusiasm that he wants to share with her but the truth is she's just not into him <laughs> exactly <laughs> and yeah. that's that's another trope from like from life mm. that you know sometimes people will say these sort of um sexually assertive things to to you and when i say people i mean men and when i say mm. you i mean me um mm. That and they, if you don't respond in that sort of ha ah, ha yes oh breasts oh whatever, then you're being cold and you know you need to loosen up. Whereas actually, yeah. <clears throat> he's just dreadful and she mm. just wants to enjoy the countryside. Mm. So he's a brilliant character, and that's what I meant in terms of the book being timeless because it is, Mr. It is absolutely timeless, isn't it? Because yeah. Mr. Mybug exists; he's alive mm. and well. And oh know, yeah. He, he's on Twitter. So um, I think, yeah, yeah I think that the characters, the, the characters are eternal. The, the ranting preacher, the, the sort of sexy would-be film star. But oh, that's the thing I was going to say about casting in, in, in the, uh, the film. Oh, yes, it's, uh, um, it's, uh, it's Rufus, uh, Rufus Sewell. And if, if, yes. if ever there was anyone who was born to play a particular part, <laughs> It's got to be Rufus Sewell as Seth, isn't it? Yes, I think the <laughs> casting of that film was extraordinary because also Ian McKellen uh, is Amos. Mm. I mean, and Kate Beckinsale is 
the yeah. most exquisite, perfectly poised flora. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's a beautiful film. I recommend it. But I, you know, it's a case where the film is very good. I still think the book is better because oh, the book the book has that weirdness because you mentioned the fact that it's set in the future, but particularly in the first chapter, we learn that the the smart set of London they now live in Lambeth mm. and that. Mayfair is a slum and we mm. don't know why it just is it's changed and that reminded me in terms of the present day how lots of parts of London that when I first considered moving to London although for the record I never have parts of London that you might have thought oh I don't think I want to live there it's too far out and it's kind of a bit less salubrious than where I would like to live those parts are where all the hip people live now and like every part of London that wasn't cool is now becoming cool just because no one can afford to live in the centre of London anymore. Yeah. So I thought that was quite prescient. But the other thing that's so weird is that, you know, there, there are porcelain geraniums in a basket outside the house that she visits at the start. You think, well, what? Why are there porcelain geraniums? Not real ones. What happened? I didn't remember noticing that. <laughs> yeah, it's when she goes to yeah. Mrs. Smiling's house. <clears throat> says the white porcelain geraniums, which hung in baskets from the little iron balconies of one mouse place, did much to cheer Flora's spirits. It's like why? And yeah. then when they go to <clears throat> there's a club that they pass where they have metal flowers in baskets, and it's like, yeah. is there some reason why there are no flowers in London? But they also go to this club with Mrs. Smiling's hangers on. And she describes that it has glass walls and a glass ceiling and a glass floor. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Is this club a glass box? Yes, apparently. Yeah. It's not explained. And also everyone travels by aeroplane. Mm. They just hop about yeah. the countryside in planes. It's the normal thing to do. So mm. there are all these tweaks of reality into something else, which... I do feel it's just that she was having fun. Yeah, she she just threw it all in, 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 into that into that novel, and I, I've never read any, anything else by her. But I, I I believe that they're far more conventional, aren't they, than her other novels? I have to confess, I think I read yeah. Christmas at Cold Comfort Farm hmm. some years ago, but I haven't read any of her other novels. And so, yeah. I mean, I know that she sort of has this this status as kind of one hit wonder but then I think she did have a very successful career mm. you know <clears throat> just and and I checked as far as I could see her novels are still available so at least they haven't sort of disappeared and I am yeah. very tempted to to read them now having come back to this novel so when yeah. you do series two I'll come back and talk about right that. Oh, cool. yeah <laughs> we'll definitely do that one last thing I wanted to talk about was that it was in 2019, the BBC brought out a list of the 100 most inspiring novels, and it was one of those. But the weird thing is, what did it inspire? What other novels are there that could be could look back to it? Because I, I, I've struggled to think of, of what, what else. And I had to look outside novels, to because I was thinking about things that, the, that it reminded me of. And the, the closest one I could think of was the the TV series Brass. Did you ever see that one? Mm. And it, um, it's, it's it's not the same sort of thing at all, but it, it's got the same sort of sensibility to it. I think in some ways. I don't know. Was it? Uh, was, were they sort of grim Yorkshire types? Yeah, 
Did mm. one of them have a bowler hat? Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it, no. I do vaguely remember. I think Timothy West is a factory owner. Yeah, um, I, I think I remember it being on, but I think yeah. I might have been a bit young. And mm. I, I only say that because when I was really young, whenever I saw any comedy on TV, I always sympathised with the characters who were having a hard time. <laughs> so hard that I didn't always see the funny side. <laughs> like when I saw Arthur Dent's house being bulldozed, mm. <laughs> I did not want his house to be bulldozed. Yeah. I felt so sorry for him. And uh, that I just think there was some point in my childhood when I realised that it's okay to laugh when bad ha- <laughs> bad things happen to good people. Mm. And as a very young child, I couldn't cope. But yeah, I think it's interesting because when you say inspiring novels, I guess I thought I would read that as novels that inspire the reader to have a better yeah, maybe- life, to, to sort of have a warmer heart, to to go into their life with more joy. Or Yeah, more- maybe, maybe that, that's me misreading it because I, I think, Actually, what would confuse me, I'll tell you what confused me. On the Wikipedia page for Cold Comfort Farm, it's described as its list of 100 most influential novels. But actually, mm. when you get to the list, it's actually inspiring novels. So maybe that's, that's a red herring. But yeah. Interestingly, I mean, talk about influence, though. Who, who do you think she influenced? Well, I suppose this is something that, has been part of my life while I've been working on comic fiction at Farago, which is that Mm. comic fiction is almost its own parallel path when you compare it to literature with a capital L, that literary authors can write funny books, genre authors can write funny books, but something that Pete Duncan, the MD of Farago, or Duckworth, which has the imprint Farago, something that he said to me was that you know people love comic fiction but it's quite hard to find it in the bookshop because there isn't a section called Mm. comic fiction usually Douglas Adams will be in sci-fi and you know Marion Keyes might be in rom-coms and you know all these different Mm. genres will be in different places but the joy of the internet is that if you if you if your book is tagged in the metadata with humorous fiction then all those books are suddenly on the same shelf together. And so the birth of internet commerce made it a lot easier for people who like this to find more books, which are like that. You know, Mm. if you liked Cold Comfort Farm, then you might like Molesworth or you might like all all these other books. And so you sort of go on a, you go on a journey. And so what I, (laughs) trying to come back to what your question was about, I think it was about influence, then I think humorous writers influence one another. And I think one of the things that's fun about your podcast is people are picking books that I suspect if you ask the other guests, they would say, yes, I've read that book and I love it. Because these highlight (laughs) titles, whether it's Lucky Jim or 1066 and all that, what did did Lev do? Heartburn. Oh, Heartburn. Yeah, you Mm. know, we've all read all of them. Mm. because it's almost like being in a club or you know going to a kind of um what are those like support groups you go in, <laughs> it's like you go into a community yeah, oh hall somewhere you have yeah. a cup of tea from a chipped cup mm. and people say welcome you like that book we like that book but we also like these other books have you read mm. jonathan pinnock 
Have you read Chris McCrudden? Have you read Isabel? Have you read Lev? Have you read Cold Comfort Farm? And sorry, I should mention Toby Frost, who I have to confess I have not read, but I will. I, th I think you need to read Toby Frost. <laughs> yes. you'd, you'd like him. You'd like it's, his stuff. I tweeted the other day that I was I was shocked and offended that the universe had not told me about the Bryant and May books by Christopher Fowler, because there are loads of them. I've read the most recent one and none of the others, and they're very funny. And if you like humorous books, you need to read that one. But again, if mm. we went back to the bookshop model, then that would be under detective fiction. Yeah. So I do feel that the writers of comic fiction, they belong in their own brilliant, crazy club where, you know, where people like us are understood and, <laughs> and sort of can be weird together. And so I think if you like humorous fiction, then you, you take it where you can find it, whether it's on a muddy farm in Sussex or on a space station or in a mathematical caper, you know, involving helicopters and off-sea oil platforms and, or offshore oil platforms, I should say. If you like laughing and you like finding life more enjoyable than it actually is, then you'll read your humorous fiction wherever you can get it. Mm. So I think maybe Stella Gibbons influenced all other humorous writers not just ones who wrote about the countryside or nice young ladies. And equally with, say, Kingsley Amis, I've grown up and really gone off Lucky Jim as mm. I really, I read it at 18 and I was like, why are all the women so terrible? And then I yes. read it later and I was like, why is Kingsley Amis so, so terrible? terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you, you know, you, you, you just have to pick the good and enjoy the grimaces and the awfulness and the hangovers and the writing and the structure and kind of swallow what you or spit out what you can't bear but yeah. all of those books if if you like comic fiction you you will find yourself being drawn to the same points because they just aren't enough yeah and that's what no. farago is here to put right yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> she said, <laughs> plugging, plugging her list. Yeah, this is probably a good point to actually ask you about your work as a commissioning editor, amongst other things. <laughs> yes. Or, so, or should we talk? Should we talk about your books first, or should we? Uh, um, oh, I, we can I, talk I, about my I really, books. I really do want to talk about your books before we go oh, into. Oh, thank you. Into, yeah, because um, you've you've written. I, I found several on Amazon, but I suspect there are probably some pseudonymous ones as well lurking around somewhere, but there that are. may be wrong here. <laughs> no, there are. But, there are quite a few. The most recent one, I think actually it's out today. Um, there's right. a book called Chonk and Small, which is <laughs> um, <laughs> published by HarperCollins, and I was working there part-time last year on their mm. gift list, and it's cute chonk and small animals, tippy-tappying and mlemming and blepping and doing the things that animals on the internet do with cute captions oh, so okay. my name not on that one but I did put it together and write it but the most I'd say it's about a dozen altogether. but they're all very mm. short and mostly rather silly some of them are quite earnest I wrote two books for octopus one called the power of yes and the other called mm. the power of no which it's really delightful that I receive foreign language editions of some of them so 
with Italian and Spanish, I have the power of yes. But interestingly, with Greek, I only have the power of no, which I think tells you something <laughs> about the Greeks. Ooh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud <laughs> of my of my foreign language editions of those titles. So those two are, are quite earnest and they're about how to set boundaries and how mm. to be positive in a, in a kind of non-annoying way. I hope. I wrote a book with DK called Lego Build Yourself Happy. Yeah, was... I'm deeply jealous of that because um, <laughs> DK is, I mean, obviously, 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 Farago are the best publishers on the planet, but obviously. I, 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 I do love DK books. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, having, having brought up, having brought up two kids in the, in the sort of era when DK were just beginning to get massive, mm. we, we ended up with a whole load of DK books. We were briefly members of the DK family library, mm. which was this pyramid selling thing, basically. <laughs> and obviously we, 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 we got, we, we joined it. And uh, as part of it, joining it, we, we had to buy all these books to sell on and we never sold them on, obviously, because that's, ah. <laughs> that's what happens. Uh, and, um, but, but but we we still we we kept all these all these wonderful books and and they they're just so beautifully beautifully produced picture books. Mm. Yeah, That's no, they, they have a really brilliant list, and so I've 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 just I've simply been very lucky because I worked for a publisher called Summersdale that produced an awful lot of gift and humor titles and mm. self help titles. So in that job, I helped put together some of the books. But when I moved on, I found myself being approached by various publishers to to write books for them for similar lists. So that's mm. why I've had just nice opportunities come my way to to be silly or to be heartfelt with illustrations and mm. to make people feel better. Just coming back to Stella Gibbons for a moment, I found a little interview clip with her. She was interviewed on Women's Hour in 1974 and she said... I've done exactly what I would like to have done best. I've written a book that I know has made a lot of people laugh and cheered a lot of people up. Mm. And I just think that's it. That's it. You yeah, know, there is. is fiction that moves you. There's fiction that, that leaves you broken. And, you know, all of those can be very powerful things. And that's what art's for. But there's so much to be said for things that cheer you up you know and tv is full of it people love parks and recreation they love shows that make them laugh and books that make you laugh i think they often sometimes they're seen as not quite proper books or not quite real Mm. books but who doesn't like to laugh who doesn't like to feel better and and there's a lot of craft in it i mean i'm looking at your um classic stocking filler book from uh from last year i'm not wearing any trousers and i'll be working from home truths (laughs) Yes, it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Thank and you. It, it, this it is so well put together, and it, it's it'll be so easy to say, oh yeah, I've got, I've got you know, to, to sort of think I've got, I've, I've got the idea. I'll just put down all all these jokes and then get to run out of steam. But it, <laughs> it, it's uh, spoiler and, alert. That is exactly what I did. Not the running out of steam <laughs> part, but the how many jokes can I think of about working yeah. from home? But the thing is, it. it you 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 take something and run with it, then go a bit further. And <laughs> That's go it. the extra mile. Uh, there's this lovely bit. Uh, I'm just picking a bit at random. You talk about but never work never work from home with children or animals. <laughs> and there's meet your new work from home colleagues, and then there's dog. And you have a job title, good points, bad points, are most likely to be. And then there's cat. And there's spider on the ceiling for those who don't have any other pets. And then there's house plant for those who don't even have a spider. 
And then finally, just as you'll think that's over, a washing pile for those who, well, you get the picture. And it, it, I, I, there's a, a lot of thought and craft gone, gone into that. Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a definite skill. Thank you. Um, it's funny because I, I think, I don't know if you can identify with this, but as a writer, I, I veer between I am not good enough and I am a genius. <laughs> And I have to admit, when I read when I read my own jokes, I tend to just think that was quite a good joke. Yeah. Yeah. I'm truly a monster. No, I look back at my books and I just go, oh. there's no shame in that at all. No shame in it at all. I don't know if it's just because I have a short enough memory that I can read it and just go, yeah. that's a good joke. But I I just think it's a real privilege to be paid to be silly. So I fully recommend people being silly and telling jokes as much mm. as possible because, I mean, especially if you're very funny on Twitter and then a publisher is just scrolling through Twitter and finds you, speaking for myself in my editing role at Farago, you know, if you find someone brilliant on Twitter, then you, you think, oh, I wonder if they've written a book. And sometimes they have mm. or sometimes they want to. And yeah, I I. I I love being able to help people bring their silliness into the world. And I love doing it myself. So mm. thank you, HarperCollins, for publishing my silly jokes and putting Spot UV mm. on the cover. You know, never going to complain mm. about that. Um, uh, yeah. And also thank you to the pandemic for making everyone work from home. And well, yes. Something to write about. <laughs> it's not all bad. <laughs> oh, sorry. I mean... Uh, it is all bad. It's all terrible. If yes. we could not have the pandemic, I would totally but, go for that. But, you yeah. know, it's interesting how, and I suppose that I feel like I've been too stupid there, but I think it's fascinating how being funny can help you get to the truth of a situation. And it reminds me of what we talked about at your book launch back in October 2018, that yeah. humour works really well when you're punching up. And when you're mm. identifying with the people you're writing to and you're all laughing at something else and particularly if what you're laughing at is someone more powerful, you know, and you can unite around it and you can find consolation in humour. And, it, you know, that's not enough to change the world, but it's enough to keep you going so that you yeah. can go on and change the world. Mm. So I just think humour is a really powerful force for good. <laughs> And no, so is. maybe that's a segue into Farago books. Yeah. <laughs> that fiction to make you smile is, I feel it's a really important as well as being a really enjoyable endeavor mm. because, you know, in your books, you satirize all sorts of terrible people and one or two of them in a very, very recognizable way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember there's one particular politician who's still, you know, quite often on our TV screens, although not not as often as he used to be before he said the terrible thing, who's very obvious in a question of trust. And I remember reading it and just going, oh. yes. Mm. Yeah, he wanted in, I thought, oh, that'd be interesting to have someone like him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and we have Paul Flower on the list who mm. satirizes the hard right and vigilantes and the pro-gun lobby. And mm. basically what he put in his book, The Great American Cheese War, then happened well, to that's Gretchen Whitman. Painfully Whitten. close, isn't it? Yeah. 
astonishing and you've got Chris McCrudden writing about sort of how technology takes over but also writing about a very diverse cast of characters Mm. in a way in a way that's powerful because a lot of sci-fi has been dominated by rather maybe non-progressive ways of looking at the roles of men and women Mm. and you know you read Chris's books and you've read a great space adventure but you've also come out having read an LGBTQ adventure where that's just part of the narrative Mm. and like your consciousness has been expanded kind of along the way and I I just think that that that's what made me love working on the Farago list so much that Mm. you can have humor and you can also have strong powerful messages wrapped up in the humor yeah I think that's that's very true, and I mean, the, I mean, the way I see it is that the the, the primary the primary thing is, is is to make the reader laugh. Yes, um, and also I but not every book has to have massive, strong, powerful messages either. And no, laughing is but the important thing. The laughing is the important thing, but you can you can smuggle well, not necessarily smuggle. I don't know. Um, you can maybe it's like can, sort of saturating. It's it's that it's full. It's present. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like if you have a positive worldview and you want the world to be in a particular way, mm. then that's a sort of like an undernote that's always there in the text. And also yeah. I think humorous fiction allows you to write about terrible people enjoyably while making it clear that they are terrible people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, that's, that's, that's a good point. So, I mean, having read A Question of Trust, I am now not going to invest in Bitcoins. No, oh, I mean, the <laughs> Bitcoin thing, the, 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 the reason I ended up writing about Bitcoin and that was is because I, I, I read this, this excellent book by a chap called David Gerard, who's uh, a very much a Bitcoin skeptic. And uh, the more I read about it, I thought, this is absolutely mad from every point of view, from the technological point of view, from the moral point of view, from any point of view you want to look at. And the whole thing's completely bonkers. And so, you know, it's an obvious thing to, to, to write about. Yeah. Uh, and, and you got reviewed by a Bitcoin website or something, didn't you? Actually, I think it was, it was David Gerrard again oh, who, was... who, who actually mentioned it. Oh, I see. I, yeah. So it, it wasn't a proper Bitcoin website. Oh, I see. But he he said that the 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 scene where Tom's father describes how he decided to invest is is like scarily true to life. That I mean that that was complete guesswork. Good. That was complete guesswork. I, I it just I imagined that was how it would would work because Tom's Tom, my hero's father, is is he's, he's a he's very susceptible to conspiracy theories and all that sort of stuff and it's exactly the way his mind his mind would work that he would latch on to onto bitcoin as as the way to to sort of show uh, the system sh- that you're yeah, stick it to the man you know yeah that's it and um it's just perfect for that <laughs> and I, I i assumed that was how it worked and, and it turned out that it it it, it, it had worked it is how it works exactly like that <laughs> yeah. with quite a few people but I also was just thinking, well, um, we were speaking then about someone else who sort of has that twin aspect of ridiculous things happening to ridiculous people and a political message. And if you look at Isabel's, uh, Isabel Rogers' Continental mm. Riff, it's oh, an yes. orchestra going on a tour of <clears> Europe. <throat> ridiculous things happen. But Brexit is very much present, although it hasn't yeah. happened yet. 
and in maybe in Isabel's <clears throat> universe it won't happen I mean fingers crossed but there's a terrible there's a terrible man and he has some terrible friends when I say terrible I mean just, <clears throat> just like he's a, just a dreadful person but he's necessary to the orchestra and he's a, a like a an uber brexiter he's he's got union jacks he's he's got appalling attitudes in many ways but he's this sort of symbol of of a person who is very annoying to be with and he's he's like a Nigel Farage fanboy and so Isabel is able to make a point without in a heavy-handed way you know inserting in the author's voice Brexit is bad we shouldn't do it the characters get to get to show you (laughs) that through the medium of a hilarious story but I think you're right in saying that the hilarious story has to come first like it has to be funny Mm. but yeah if you've got something that you want people to if you've got a message you want people to take in and you can be funny then yeah why not do both so does that does that cover Farago and I I noticed you said in in one of your earlier podcasts it's not Virago (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes it's not virago i have said the same thing at parties where i've gone oh yeah i work for farago books and they're like oh yeah i just love feminist literature and i'm like i do too <laughs> but this is farago <laughs> it's funny because i never hear those two words as sounding the same because i know what they are but i understand that yeah, no, if I, you're... I, I i get a lot that and that's talking to talking to isabel about this and then she mm. obviously gets it more than i do because <laughs> In because it's case, more they'll, like they'll probably filter it out room. in advance but uh, <laughs> yeah. final thing i was asking about was uh tiktok ah are you still do tiktoks because I, I i was very impressed by it by by your work in this field <laughs> that's the line no one has ever said <laughs> i am i think my last one was two weeks ago which sounds very right. much like the sort of first thing you say when you go into confession yeah. father it's been two weeks <laughs> two weeks since i last tiktok <laughs> um, so I'm I'm not the most prolific TikToker. I don't even I, show, don't remember but, sharing that one on Twitter. I um, watch out for these things, you know. I do I do share what I think are the good ones on Twitter. So I did one that was like a makeup challenge where people would right, do. Well, I, I might have filtered that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so what it was because I I I can't do makeup and and, and I don't, but. It was a challenge that people were doing emojis, but in makeup on their face. So it started with people doing like the laughing, crying emoji, but on their face or the the dinosaur emoji on their face or the rainbow emoji. It was just very detailed and people spend far too long on this kind of thing. But I did one of books. So I did um, how to be a domestic goddess. And then I had like a cream colored jumper and a cupcake on my head. Oh, what else did I do? I did convenience store woman. So I, I found uh, one of those name tags you get from a conference and I sort of put that on my head and I put TikTok woman. <laughs> so, and I was really proud of that because it took me about an hour to do. But the best thing, I fully recommend TikTok um, because there are just so many bizarre creative people there being mm. silly. And as I think we've, I think we've already established that I I enjoy it when people are silly Mm. but I did a TikTok about six months ago where I it's only about 15 seconds long but I have this there's a song playing where where you 
you you show what you think you're of yourself as being and then what you actually are and it, it started off with me imagining myself as this very bookish person in a in a sweatshirt that says I love reading and I've got all these books and I'm kind of just going mm, books me and my bookish life and then it cuts to me on the sofa just scrolling through TikTok with a, a mug balanced on my belly and that last time I checked it had like 140,000 views which is far beyond any tweet I have ever posted so sometimes you just go viral with like, no reason so it's very enjoyable but I need to do more because you know it's been two weeks since my last TikTok <laughs> And also for yeah. anyone who's listening, if you think it's only for like Gen Z, you know, I would fully recommend taking a look because there are grannies and granddads and all sorts of people. Once you get through the first week or so where it just shows you teenagers dancing, it will realize that you're interested in grown-ups who are not dancing and it will show you those. And so g- give it a chance because it's very funny. Yes, I've been sort of vaguely wondering if no. I, I, I oh yeah, because you do no. YouTube videos, and uh, oh, wait, one thing I wanted to mention is just that you are insanely creative and multifaceted, and I I admire that so much. I mean, I don't have any other authors, as far as I know, who created their own Wikipedia, and not only did they start it, but they keep adding to it. You've done YouTube videos, you've got a podcast. Like it just feels to me like you have so much. There's so much like. <laughs> ridiculous creativity and humor coming out of you so it's also a level of desperation <laughs> is it just because you've been locked up in your house for too long yeah that desperation neediness and, and um wanting some sort of validation you know it, it, it's <laughs> but that's why we all do everything yeah it, it is know, I suppose. It, it, whether that, it's that, that's why people are creative i suppose isn't it yeah i mean yeah. i know you can be creative just for yourself but there, there is a, there's a lot of pleasure in doing anything and having someone like it, mm. whether it's a TikTok or a tweet or a novel, or you just make a nice dinner. Like it really, that, that little burst of pleasure you get mm. from, from people clicking the heart or saying, I liked your book. It made me laugh. Mm. You know, I think that's a strong motivating factor and we shouldn't, we shouldn't poo poo it. No, not at all. Which is probably a good note to end on. <laughs> so th- thank you very much for coming along it's a pleasure i feel i've wandered hither and yon and i hope at least some of the time i've made sense and you know i i i'm really delighted that you've created this place for the celebration of humorous fiction so thank you well yeah thank you if you've enjoyed this or even if you hadn't but just feel sorry for us please feel free to reward us by buying our books or in abby's case hiring her you can find abby on twitter as at abby hayden that's a-w-b-i-e-h-e-a-d-o-n and my website is at www.jonathanpinner.com and do please rate review and subscribe you'll find this podcast in all the usual places Next time, I'll be talking to Chris McCrudden about Emotionally Weird by Kate Atkinson, as well as his own very funny Battlestar Suburbia series of novels. See you then. (laughs) And that is it. That's a wrap.